Really great to see how Kyle has grown in the Lord. How long have you been out here? Yeah, two years. Came from Atlanta. I remember the first night I met you. And uh, you were out here basically beginning a career in rock music, but continuing your career in rock music. And uh, the Lord sort of shifted gears on him in the process. And now he's here preparing, I think, for ministry. God's put it in your heart. That's really exciting. See the Lord change a life. Wonderful. Thank you, Kyle. Let me read you a verse before I share uh, my testimony this morning. Two verses, really. James, James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the next day. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. And what James is saying here is that everyone needs to recognize that all plans made by men and women are contingent plans on the will of God. We can never say, tomorrow I'm going to do this and that, go to this city, continue there a year, buy and sell, make my fortune. What we ought to say is, if the Lord wills, I'll do that. For life is a vapor. It's like the smoke, the steam that rises off a cup of coffee. It just comes and goes. It appears for a little time and vanishes away. When you're young, you don't think that. When you're young, you think it's going to last forever. In fact, uh, some people wonder if uh, they'll ever get older. Well, you will, promise. And the older you get, the faster the years go by. But it doesn't seem that way when you're young. And you wonder, really, if life is a vapor. It seems like it's a, it's a long, long time. I thought that, too. I always felt that, you know, I was invincible like every other young person does that you can sort of gamble a bit with your life and uh, probably come out all right until I had a very severe accident and I want to give you a little background to that I was raised in a Christian family raised in the church all my life I went to Sunday school every waking Sunday in my existence from the time that I was a mere infant till now um, with few exceptions I was involved in every activity in the church because my dad was always the pastor my grandfather was also a pastor so was my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather. So church was just life for me. We just grew up in the church. In fact, I lived in 17 houses by the time I had my 17th birthday. So when I think about my childhood, I don't think about houses. I think about churches. We stayed in churches longer than we stayed in houses. So life for me was church. And I learned all the Bible verses and I collected all the quarterlies and I got all the zipper Bibles they gave us when we graduated from one department into another. I had little stickers stuck on my head, you know, stars, rabbits, turkeys, whatever it was, depending on how I behaved myself. And uh, by the time I was eight, I had sticker stains across my forehead. You know, I had so many. But um, I grew up in the church. I went away... Uh, to, of course, those great and exciting years of high school, and I was involved in athletics. I, I really just lived for athletics. That was my whole world. I went out for every sport every year. Um, baseball, basketball, football, track, every year in high school. And um, 
I just felt that that's where I got reinforcement. That's where I got my my kicks, my thrills. You know, I, I books were incidental. I never let my books get in the way of my education, which is not a good way to go. <laughs> but that's the way it was. But I was I lived for sports. If I could score a touchdown, if I could uh, get 15 or 20 points in a basketball game, if I could uh, get two or three hits in a baseball game, or win a track meet event, I was in the high jump and the sprints. And if I could do that kind of thing, I would be happy. That satisfied me. That's where I was fulfilled. I graduated from high school and um, was trying to decide where to go to college. I had received some scholarship offers and uh, and was really trying to think through the best way to advance my my athletics. When my dad said to me, you're going to go to a Christian college. And um, he said, I just want you to go there to start with. I think you need that. I wasn't rebellious. I never really rebelled. I, I wasn't uh, in trouble a lot. I was just a little bit full of mischief. I told you that the other night. But uh, I really didn't rebel against the Lord. I didn't rebel against the church. I didn't rebel against my parents. I always accepted everything. I, I believed it in my heart to a, a somewhat shallow degree. But I believed it all. I didn't know anything else. I mean, the worst thing I'd ever done in my life probably was stealing a few things from Sears one day when a guy dared me to do it. And uh, they caught me and I wound up in the Glendale jail for an afternoon. Um, and once I smoked a big black cigar and got sick, you know, so I really wasn't into heavy drugs or anything like that. Um, I, I didn't rob a bank or so I was basically a, just sort of a normal kid with a little bit of a twinkle in my eye for a, a little mischief here and there. But um, when I went away to this Christian school, I was very upset because I really wanted to play athletics and they didn't have any intercollegiate athletics at all. In fact, they had very strict rules. Um, you know, boys couldn't talk to girls except during certain hours in the day. And You know, when they played co-ed volleyball, they hung a black sheet over the net so you couldn't see the girls on the other side. You know, it was that kind of a deal. Um, they had all these kind of rules, and it was a really kind of a strange place for me. I really didn't need that many rules. I wasn't going to go out and do anything horrible, but I guess some people did. But when I got there, I was angry with God because God had put me in a place where I had no athletic fulfillment, and I had to just... Uh, uh, try to conform to this very, very narrow style of life. And I was upset at my father. And I was upset at, at the Lord because I thought God put me there. So really, I just sort of shook my fist at God and said, I'm not going to have any fun here. And I'm going to let you know how miserable I am as we go through this. So I just determined to be miserable. And um, that's when, as I told you the other night, I, I didn't have any social life at all. I just I was like a hermit. You know, I went to my room and did my little thing and uh, and studied a little bit. In fact, I studied more than I would have liked because I had nothing else going. Um, but I didn't participate in anything. And finally, that's when they assigned me a date to try to help me come out of my social shell. And I told you about her. I won't go into that again. But anyway, they assigned me a date. And uh, that didn't fly, believe me. But I went through that one evening rather reluctantly and ditched her halfway. I think she was happy for that because I was about as difficult to handle for her as she was for me. But anyway... So that was a very distressing year. And um, by the time that year was at an end, I was so glad to get out of that place. I got in a car with six other kids and we were coming home. And I was just finishing my freshman year. We were driving across the United States. And the guy drove six o'clock in the morning. We started out real early. Six o'clock in the morning, six kids in a Ford. We had a Ford two-door car. And we were coming across the, the country through the state of Alabama. And we were near a little town called Utah, Alabama, E-A-U-T-A-W, I think you spell it. And anyway, we were going along about 65 miles an hour, and there was a car in front of us. I remember very vividly, I was sitting in the front seat on the right-hand side, and there's this car in front of us. And um, 
the guy driving, my friend Gordon, decided to pass this car. Well, he pulled out, and the car kind of moved a little bit. It, it kind of shook him up, so he just cranked the wheel a little bit further to the left than he wanted to, and we went off the other shoulder. It was a narrow road, kind of sloped like this. And so we had two wheels on the dirt and two wheels on the, on the pavement. And I could see a whole lot of telephone poles coming up, you know? And so, you know, it was, it was urgent for us to get back on the road, or we would have been, you know, cut in half by these poles. So he just cranked that wheel back onto the highway, and when the two rear wheels both hit the pavement, it just shot the car forward right at the guy we were passing. And I can remember the look on the guy's face, because he looked like this, and his eyes were about as big as plates, you know. And we started right at him, and at that point, uh, Gordon just cranked the wheel and it was power steering and it just rotated the wheel and the tires and the car took off and went into orbit and we were hitting about 75 by now and the car flew into the air left the ground and the last thing I remember is that my door flew open and I exited the car I went out of the car and of course um, I didn't have a seatbelt on or anything but I just flew out of that car and I I came to a landing and I landed in an absolutely incredible way and, and I landed in a perfect landing position I mean, if you have to land, I landed where you should land, on my southern hemisphere. And I landed, amazingly enough, if I'd have landed on my side or any other part of my body, I would have rolled, and they told me later it probably would have killed me because it could have crushed my skull. But I landed in a perfect sitting position, and that, of course, the providence of God. I landed right on my tail end, in the small of my back, in this kind of a position, uh, with my knees up in the air. So literally, I hit the highway going 75 miles an hour, perfect sitting position. And when I hit, I didn't roll, and I didn't spin, and I didn't humble, uh, tumble. I just hit and slid. And I slid, and when it was all calculated, I slid about 110 yards on my tail end. But I was in a perfect sitting position the whole time, just like this, you know. I even stayed in my own lane, you know, just right down the highway. And, uh, if it, of course, while I was sliding, it's very vivid to me now. If you've ever been through an accident, you might remember how vivid those things can be. And while I was sliding, my eyes were wide open. I was totally conscious, never lost conscious at all. I watched the car with five people in it. Since the car had flipped over when it exited me, but since my door was open, it acted like a sort of a right angle brace. And when the door hit at a right angle to the car, it kept the car from rolling again. And so the car just started spinning on its top. Now, all of our luggage was on the top of the car. So luggage was going every place. I mean, everywhere. And all the rest of the stuff that was up there, but the car kept spinning on its lid like this, and finally it spun off into a ditch. And it, it, all of this going on, of course, in a matter of seconds. I, I wish somebody had had a stopwatch. I'd have had about a three flat for the 100 meters. But I got down there real quick. All of this, you know, sort of happening fast, but it gets dragged out as you think about it. Anyway, I decided to put my hands down to stop. I didn't know how else to stop. I don't know where the brakes are, you know. So I put my hands down, and I still have some scars you can see on my hands where it ripped my hands open, created on this hand a huge bubble from third-degree friction, just a great big bubble like a frog's throat right here. And um, the jolt of my hands going down tumbled me, and I tore the skin off all my knees, elbows, shoulders, and rolled a while. Finally, I stopped rolling. No broken bones. When I stopped rolling, I stood right up, totally conscious, walked off the highway. I didn't want to get in an accident, so I walked off, stood on the side of the highway, and I stood there, and I, I, I didn't realize it, but on the front, I had shirt and pants. On the back, I had nada, you know? All I had was one warped belt going across my middle. Everything else was long gone, and I was implanted with highway. 
about a half inch deep. Um, I stood on the side of the highway and I looked across the road and I noticed the kids started crawling out of the car. All five kids crawled out of that car. The car was totaled. Not one of them had a scratch. Not one of them. In fact, one guy had his record collection on the roof of the car in the luggage rack. And I'll never forget, he came out of the car and all I could think about was his records. He was roaming around the highway, my records, my records. And I'm saying, your records, my Yaha, you know, what a... <laughs> Let's get our priorities together here, guy. But anyway, he was really worried about his records because they went all over like a bunch of Frisbees, you know, all over everywhere. They were every place, out of the jackets and everywhere. And kids were wandering around. You're in a kind of a state of shock, picking up pieces of stuff and shoes here and there. Well, the guy we were trying to pass, of course, saw this in his rearview mirror and pulled over and he came to us to see if he could help. But before that time, you know, as I stood on that highway, I had a lot of thoughts. It's amazing. First of all, you know, you sort of, I heard myself say John MacArthur, John MacArthur over and over because I, I was just saying my name. You know, that's, I guess that's just a sort of a subconscious reaction to identify whether you're still around. And, and in a state of shock, it's, it's hard to know. And then I, I remember so vividly, it was as if the Lord said, um, I'm talking to you. Uh, this is a message for you, MacArthur. And I said on that highway, I said, Lord, look, if you want my life so badly that you're going to play like this, I give. I can't fight this. You know, some people God talks to and they listen. Other people, he grabs them, s smashes them down on the pavement and they say, yes, did you want me? Well, that was me. I was very resistant to being what God wanted me to be. I, I knew everything about the Lord. I believed everything about the Lord. But I wanted to run my own life. I wanted to say tomorrow I'll do this and the next day I'll do this and the next day I'll do that. And I'm not going to ask what the Lord wants at all. That was not even a consideration in my thinking. I wanted to be a professional athlete. I wanted to go into that kind of thing. I wanted to be at least a collegiate athlete to get started. Here I was in a place where I had none of that. I was very upset at God and I was very upset at my own self because of the failure to fight through for my own convictions I thought were my own desires. And here God had slapped me on the pavement and I knew that in any moment of my life I was one breath away from death. I knew it as I stood on the highway. And I said, look, Lord, if you're going to, if it's this big a deal for you to get a hold of me, I'm yours. And standing on that highway, I committed my life to Christ. And I said, I'll be anything you want me to be, and I'll do anything you want me to do. Years ago, I had known in my life that God had called me to preach. I don't know how I knew that. I just always knew that. But on that day, I said, Lord, if it's the ministry you want, I give my life to you. I mean, I really had no other option. That's, I had to say that. All of my own battles were over, really, because I couldn't fight at that level. The Lord controlled my destiny. Well, I made my commitment to Christ standing on that highway. The guy who had the car that we tried to pass came walking back and he was in just, he was just totally wiped out. He couldn't believe what he'd seen. And so uh, we had to get to a, hosp a hospital, which was about 100 miles away. And so uh, we went in his car and they put me gingerly on the back seat and I sat sort of up on my thighs kind of hanging to the front seat. And I remember this guy was really concerned that I not bleed on his new seat covers. I remember he said that about three times on the way, which wasn't of great concern to me. I was just trying to stay alive, you know. Anyway, we got to the hospital, Birmingham, and they, they were having some kind of flu epidemic and they didn't have a bed for me, so they just put me on a gurney table in the hall and they wheeled me into a surgery room and they said, we're going to try to clean this asphalt out of your back. And so um, 
I remember this great big nurse held my shoulders and somebody else held my legs and they strapped my legs down to a table and they took brushes and tried to scrub all this stuff out of my back. And I just went out. I just went totally out. And uh, they, after they had cleaned all that, supposedly, they didn't get it all out. Um, even to this day, there are still little bits and pieces of stuff that now and then comes out of that part of my back. But anyway, while I was lying on the bed and they were cleaning this all out, they decided to put strips of furacin. Furacin is a healing agent used in burns. And they saturated these gauze strips with furacin and then they laid them in my back to fill up this 64 square inch area of about, you know, a quarter to a half inch deep where it all been gouged out. So they just laid all this stuff in and just filled it all up. And the theory of the doctor was that eventually as the scar tissue grew, it would all sort of fall out. They put me on an airplane, wrapped me up like a mummy. My arms were wrapped, my knees were wrapped, my shoulders were wrapped, my middle was wrapped. And I got on this airplane to fly home. And, of course, the whole time I had to sort of sit up in the seat. I got home, I walked off the airplane. I remember my mother saw me and she came to embrace me and I just ducked, you know, and she went right on by. Uh, please. <laughs> but anyway, I, I had to go from there to three months in bed. And during those three months, I really came to grips with my life. I started to read. I had a little New Testament. I would lie in bed on my stomach. I was on my stomach for nearly all the three months. The first thing they had to do, by the way, after three days, they decided to take all those strips back out again. So they tried to deaden the pain in my back and rip it all out. And then they changed it every day, day after day after day after day, trying to let it heal. But anyway, during those three months, I really came to grips with my life and what God wanted out of my life and what he wanted to do with my life. And I committed everything to him. I said, Lord, I'll go back to the school. Even though they don't have what I want, I'll be what you want me to be. I went back the next year. We sang in a quartet. I preached every weekend. And God used that time in wonderful ways um, to sharpen the skills that he had given me for ministry, to make lifelong friends. Um, it was just an incredible time in my life. In fact, uh, Kelly Bird's dad was in a quartet I was in, and Eric Peterson's dad was in a quartet, the same quartet. We had great days, made lifelong friends. And uh, I committed my life to the Lord in terms of ministry. I said, if you don't want me involved in sports, that's fine. That's fine. After that second year, I came back home. And I had the opportunity to, um, to go to Pacific College. It no longer exists, by the way. They uh, were replaced. They went out of business some years ago because of their heavy athletic budget. Literally buried the school. But I was in on the time when they were spending all the money in sports. But anyway, they said to me, they said, we'll take your units. We want you to come. We need a running back. And in fact, they said we need a quarterback. They thought I could play quarterback, though I was a tailback in high school. And I couldn't because I couldn't get my footwork down. I hadn't had enough experience at it. And I kept turning the wrong way with my feet. And after about a week, they said, you're a tailback. And kicked me back one slot. And um, so I had the opportunity, by God's grace, and he gave me that opportunity to transfer schools and to participate in football, basketball, baseball. I even ran a little bit of track. I uh, even had an opportunity one day when they were having the, the, the league finals in, the t in tennis. Uh, one of the guys, I think it was the third guy on the tennis team, got sick, and so they threw a racket in my hand and stuck me out there. But all those things I'd ever wanted to do as an athlete came to pass, and God was so good and so gracious. And I learned a great principle, and that's the principle of Psalm 37.4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you what? Desires of your heart. Boy, what a great thought. I mean, the Lord made me to have ability in that area, some ability, and the Lord is honored when that ability is used to his glory. God made us not only thinking people, but he made us moving people, and he is honored when we give him the best of our minds, and he's honored when we give him the best of our bodies. 
I was asked yesterday what my view is of athletics in the college, and I said it's the same view I have of every other thing we do. I don't care whether it's academics or music or athletics. We don't offer the Lord anything but the very best. And I think you all remember the great line, Eric Little's line in Chariots of Fire, where he said, God gave me the ability to run, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Sure. Whatever it is you do, you do to the best of your ability. And so God allowed me that opportunity and an opportunity to have a spiritual influence in the lives of my teammates. I remember one time I was player of the week in Southern California in football and I went to speak to some Kiwanis group and they gave me a, an award and all of this. And I got up and had the privilege of, of presenting Jesus Christ to them, which was a wonderful opportunity. I mean, a tremendous opportunity. And I, I told them the most important person in my life was Christ and it was just a great time. So, you know, God gave me those kinds of opportunities. He allowed me the privilege to participate in all those other sports as well. And I think that's important for you to know, because I've never found in my life that God is a, kiss, a cosmic killjoy. You know, I don't think God's going around saying, there's one having fun. <laughs> Get him, see. I don't buy that. I don't think God wants to rain on your parade. I think God wants you to be fulfilled in the maximum capacity for which he has made and gifted you. And that's a tremendous thing to realize. So that really was a turning point in my life. I committed my life to Christ totally and everything I'd ever wanted immediately he poured out to me and far beyond that, far beyond that. What a privilege. I had opportunity while I was playing in athletics also to be involved in youth ministry in my dad's church and to refine my uh, teaching ministry. I remember all through football season, and I played three seasons, all the last two football seasons I was teaching the college class. Patricia is here this morning, my wife, she was in that class, and I'm telling you, it's tough to get up Sunday morning and come and teach a college class when you have played football Saturday afternoon. It's tough. And I can remember so many times just standing there, and when I was done teaching, I could not move one way or the other. But those were great years, the years when God allowed me to fulfill the joy of my heart and also gave me a, a ministry that began to refine and use the gifts that he'd committed to me. When I, when I graduated, finally from college, um, my coach came to me and he said, um, you know, you've been scouted and all of this, and uh, we had received a lot of letters from uh, NFL, and in those days it was an AFL before the AFC and the NFC United. And he said... Uh, we got to respond to this. What are we going to do? And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, you, you tell them that I feel God's called me to the ministry and I appreciate their interest, but um, I'm not interested in signing a contract at all because I feel God wants me to go to seminary. Coach didn't understand that. Uh, he said, are you sure, are sure about that? You don't want to give it a shot. No, I really don't. That was after football season. Baseball season came along at the end of baseball season. I had been given an opportunity for a tryout with... Uh, the Angels, this was in their earlier years, before they moved to Anaheim. And I had the same response. And I don't, I don't think I ever would have gone anywhere or made it. It was a nice gesture on their part. But I'm only telling you that to say I was already so locked in to what God wanted me to do that I knew the direction of my life. And it isn't necessarily the way it is for everybody. That's just the way it was for me. That's what God wanted in my life. But something really pushed me over the, the hump on that. Uh, I was doing some ministry with my dad and one of the things that I was involved in was his radio ministry <clears throat> and we got a letter from a, a family about a girl by the name of Polly who was the head cheerleader at Thousand Oaks High School and the letter said that she had been shot by her boyfriend through the neck and severed her spinal cord just a vivacious you know super gal 
but now she's a quadriplegic. And the letter asked if there's any way that I could, because I had been, uh, I think I had been on a television program at that point and the family had seen me, was there any way that I could come and, and share a testimony with her? She really was desperate. I went to the Glendale Adventist Hospital and she was lying on a sheepskin so she wouldn't get bed sores, which is pretty typical for someone who's been paralyzed. And I, I remember introducing myself to her. She didn't even know who I was. I tried to explain that I was uh, a Christian and that her family had asked for me to come and share the truth of Christ with her and so forth. She said, if I could kill myself, I'd kill myself. But she said, I can't because I can't move anything but my head. All she could move was her head. She said, I don't want to live, I want to die. I found out it was an accident. They were playing with a gun, just fooling around, and it went off. So she didn't, she didn't blame her boyfriend in that sense, but she sure was angry, and she sure had nothing to live for. So I tried to explain to her, I said, you know, it isn't the physical that matters, it's the spiritual. And I, I was just a, stumbling around trying to make sense out of what I was saying. And I said, I believe Jesus Christ can give you reason to live. And I went through the whole thing. And she said to me, she said, at this point, I'll try anything. If Christ can change my life, I'm willing to try anything. If he can give me a reason to live. And she bowed her head and she prayed with me and she opened her heart to receive Christ. And I, I, was, I was absolutely ecstatic, and I couldn't believe it. I, I expected a lot of resistance. I didn't know God could use me like that. I came back to see her, I think it was the next day or two days later, and um, she said something to me that will live in my mind for eternity. She said, uh, John, I'm glad this, this accident happened, because if it hadn't happened, I never would have met Jesus Christ. It just blew me away. You're glad this happened. In a couple of days, she could see through the physical to the reality of the spiritual. And I walked out of that place saying to myself, there's nothing that I could ever do on the face of the earth that could even come close to this. Certainly not running around on a field with a piece of pig on your arm. <laughs> nothing could ever come close to this. Nothing. Giving people an eternal purpose for living. And so with that kind of affirmation in my heart, I launched off to begin seminary at Talbot Seminary. And I wanted to learn how to be an expositor of the Scripture, and that's what I did for the next three years. I went to seminary, graduated from seminary all that time working with my dad. Uh, after I'd been in the church for a while and after I graduated, Dr. Feinberg, who was the dean of the seminary, called me one day and said, I want you to come back and be on the staff of the seminary. I want you to preach. I want you to travel around the country, represent the seminary, work on some projects for us, kind of coordinate our spiritual life. In fact, I did at the seminary, Russ, a lot like what you do here, a little bit of teaching and a lot of other stuff. And for two and a half years, I preached an average of 35 to 40 times a month. That was great. I crammed 10 years of preaching experience into two. And the Lord just kept refining and refining. And most all of my speaking was done to young people's groups. Junior high kids, high school kids, college kids. And if you learn to communicate with those kind of people, basically you can communicate with anybody. I've always felt the, the easiest group to speak to are kids because if they're not interested in what you say, they have the courtesy to talk. And you know they're not interested. Adults, they just smile and tune out. And you don't know what's going on. You learn to communicate by learning to communicate with the people who are hard to communicate with. You have to capture their attention. It was a great opportunity for me. Well, after a couple of years of that, 
I really wanted to get out of that. I wanted to get into a church because I was tired of the same five messages. Everywhere you go, you know, they want the same deal. They want you to speak on prophecy, sex, how to get saved, spirit-filled life, or, you know, whatever. And the will of God. That was it. Everywhere you go, zing, zing, zing. Same old stuff. And I was going around and around the same barn, and I really had this tremendous hunger to dig into the Word of God. The second pastor died at Grace Community Church. They were looking for a pastor. I went there on a Sunday night. I preached. They called me to be the pastor, and I was, I was where I wanted to be. And from the first Sunday I was there, I began to teach systematically through books of the New Testament and the Old Testament. One book after another, after another, after another. And I confess to you honestly that I do this not because I necessarily think it's the best kind of preaching, although I do believe that. I do it because it's the deepest hunger of my own heart. The greatest joy I have in the ministry is the process of discovering the truth of the Word of God. I love that, that adventure. And so I have the privilege of spending my days doing that. In fact, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, with uh, maybe a little exception here and there, uh, and part of Saturday, I spend every week studying the Word of God. And that's the great joy of my life. Preaching is kind of like the gravy. The real fun is in the digging out of God's truth. So when they wanted a pastor, I came, and it's been now about 17 and a half years. That kind of brings us up to where you, you were yesterday. I think I wasn't here. John Stead and I go back to high school. I don't know if he told you that. We were, uh, we were in the same infield in high school. We, in fact, we rode to school. He had the hottest Chevy going. Um, and we rode to school together. We also played basketball together. He was a quarterback and I was a tailback in football. And I can remember many, many times when he pitched the ball back to me. Um, we had a lot of fun in those years involved in athletics. And he used to beat the tail off me in ping pong no matter how I tried. He was tough. But anyway, we had a great friendship. And as the Lord would have it, through the years, John, by God's providence, wound up getting his Ph.D. at USC in political science. He was always into political science. In the ninth grade, he was into political science. He was analyzing everything politically. I think his dad did that. Is that right, John? His dad was a tremendous uh, political analyst. He was curious about all areas of history and political science. And, and I was so excited to see John get a doctorate in that area. But anyway, that just was where he belonged. He came here and um, he got involved in the school. And then by God's providence again, he became the academic dean. And so he and I kept that friendship um, through the years. And um, I remember when he first approached the opportunity that uh, might be offered to come here as president. Uh, we had breakfast, and we talked about it, and I said, there's no way. That just can't happen, John. I can't take another job. I can't do anymore. I'm, I'm already to the limit. There's nothing I can really do. And I, I'm sure that you've got a lot of people that would be better uh, prepared and, and so forth, and the, the board and all the constituency of the school, I mean, it just would never happen. And then I don't know if you told him, but uh, Jerry Smith, who was the chairman of the board, came to see me, talked to me, and he said, boy, it would be wonderful, but I don't believe it'll ever happen either. It just, but the Lord began to move in my heart, and the Lord began to move in the hearts of the board, and uh, Dr. Duncan, when he finally was told what was going on <laughs> underneath him, and the Lord just kept working, and I prayed about it for several months. And I really wanted to say no, believe me. Something in me wanted to say yes because I could see the potential and because I have a heart for training young people and that's, a, that's such a tremendously strategic thing to do. But everything inside of me humanly said no because it's just more work, it's more effort, how are you going to do it? And then the, the Lord would say to me, but the school's only eight minutes from where you live, it's on your way to the church. 
um, there's capable people who can handle this and that. The final issue for me was if I could find someone to be an executive vice president who could just keep his hands on everything and, and really run everything, and then find a man who could keep his fingers on the spiritual pulse of the school, and God gave us Russ and Bob Provost. And I want to tell you what happened with Bob. I, um, I said to a mutual friend that Bob and I have, I had been with Bob in his great church when he was back in Akron, and uh, I had seen him work, and I knew his capabilities, and I knew his background. Uh, he was headed for um, really international service for the government, having received his degree, I think, at Pittsburgh in Russian, and he was on his way to that kind of a career. Then he got diverted into business. Then he got converted. Then at 35, he went to seminary. And uh, so, you know, the Lord really had shaped him for a lot of things, a business background, a seminary degree, an understanding of international activities. And he had a heart for missions. So I decided I'd, I'd see maybe if he weren't the right guy. And I, I called this fellow that I trust and judgment on leadership. And I said, you tell me who the best guy in the United States is. And I gave him this job description. I said, you name the guy. And he said, there's only one guy for that job, and that's Bob Provost. I said, I thought you'd say that. So I, I tried to call him, and I called back to Ohio, and I got his wife, Luetta, and she said, he's in China. So I, I started to call, and I called around Asia. <laughs> Finally, I got him in the Philippines. And he was over there, and I, he said, you know, John, he said, I'm over here because I'm considering how I can be a part of the strategy to evangelize all of Asia. I see God doing some mighty things over here. You know, great technological centers, do you know this, are being built right now in the major cities of China because China wants to westernize really rapidly. Great technological centers are being built all throughout the major cities of China. You might not know this. All of those centers are being funded by a large Christian foundation and all the people going in to teach the people the skills are Christians. So it's really an infiltration. Bob was going to be involved in that. I said, Bob, let me tell you, you can be a missionary or you can come help me train a whole bunch of them. Think about it. Pray about it. And I'm not going to say anything to anybody here until I hear from you. Well, the Lord moved on his heart, for which I am eternally grateful. And uh, he said, I think that's what God wants me to do. And once he said his heart was open to this and I could see the team begin to come together, I said, well, if God's in it, let's do it. And it was an act of faith on my part, believe me, because I had no idea really how to do this. I, in fact, when somebody calls me President MacArthur, I don't understand that. I don't, I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't even like that. I even have a difficulty with Dr. MacArthur. I'm not even a nurse. You know, those kinds of things. Uh, I, I'm a pastor, and I've always been a pastor, and that's all I've ever been. Uh, and a teacher of the Word of God. And I really, I don't understand necessarily all of the nuances, but I do believe in my heart that God has called me here just to try to be a, a channel through which He can give His direction to the school. And it's been just marvelous to see what God has done. I want you to know, too, that the ministries that God has given to me, at the heart of them is, of course, the ministry of Grace Community Church. That's my heart and soul. That's where I really bleed. Um, and that will always be the case, because that's what God's called me to do, is to preach and teach His Word. But I want you to know also that this school has a great part of my heart and is a great part of my life. In fact, in these years is the dominant thing in my life, even more than the church, because I've had 18 years to get the church going and it's it's really moving now. In fact, I show up and they say, if you can get him out of the way, we'll get this work done. You know, uh, they're already going 90 miles an hour down there. And this has been a wonderful challenge here. But I want you to know that the church people and the church board and everyone who's a part of our ministry there is so thrilled about the relationship that we have to the college. There's no tension at all. Everyone is enthusiastic and excited.
And you know now God has allowed us to start the Master Seminary, and our elders are so excited about that, they want to spend three hours on Friday morning talking about how they can be better interfaced with the life of the seminary. By the way, we've enrolled over 100 men in the seminary in our first semester. So we're very excited. The church folks are very, very committed to this. And I just want you to know that. I also want you to know that um, our radio ministry is kind of interwoven with our college. How many of you heard about the college from radio? few of you around the country, sure. And there will be more and more. We're changing the format of our daily radio program. We're on 220 cities now every day, five days a week, broadcasting all across this country. We're broadcasting now um, in part of the Far East, in India, Sri Lanka, I don't know where all. The Philippines, we're broadcasting a lot of different places. And we're going to continue to profile the Master's College because we want to start drawing students, the best students from all over every place. Some of you know and may have been there, last Friday night we launched a new television program. We're going to have it to show you in chapel one of these days, uh, sometime around the end of the month, so you can see what the format's going to be. But it's an exciting concept in evangelism. We're just launching, and I'll just give you a little rundown on it briefly. It, this particular program is built around sports. It starts out with some really hot footage from the Chicago Bears training camp getting ready for this season. They're the Super Bowl champs. Interview with Willie Galt, uh, Walter Payton. An interview with Mike Singletary, who's probably the greatest linebacker in football, and is a totally committed Christian. Hard to imagine, you know, after he just plasters somebody to the ground, picks him up and says, bless you, brother, you know, uh, whatever. But anyway, he's an animal. Uh, but great Christian guys, they're just, they're, they're on the thing. And then we do a music video, uh, really kind of thing. There's no easy way. I think it came from uh, one of the Rocky things. And it has to do with showing the diligence and commitment it takes to be good. There's some other stuff on sports, and then a gospel message is presented. It's a really dramatic approach. And then some live interaction. We had some unbelievers in the audience, had a, about 150 people there. And one guy popped up and wanted to, he said, I believe in reincarnation. What do you think of that? It was really fun, you know, dealing with with these kinds of things right on camera. So that's going to be a part of the program as well. And the idea is that people will watch this. It'll become a weekly program. They'll write in and they'll receive a subscription to a sports magazine free. A free subscription. Somebody is putting up the money for all of this, obviously. And they get that free magazine. It's got articles about, you know, Dan Quisenberry, um, the guy who throws the sinker. And it's got articles about golfers and football players and an article by Craig Reynolds, the Houston Astros, and so forth. And then the gospel is presented and then some Bible study stuff. And then the whole back of the magazine is this huge ad for the Master's College. And the first, uh, the first issue of the magazine has 80,000 copies. And down the way, they hope to produce millions of them and broadcast not only in English but in five languages around the world. So the future for us is just incredible. We don't know what God's going to do in the future. But as I said to some of you last week, to be in on the ground floor of this whole thing is very, very wonderful. And I hope you're as appreciative of what God has brought you into as I am. I can't believe this. Uh, I pinch myself and say, how did all this ever happen? Some people say to me, how do you do all of that? I don't know. I don't do this. I am a spectator. I watch this. I show up and it happens. I see God doing it. Bringing together marvelous people like you, faculty, staff, students. It's just that I feel in my heart, and you need to feel that way too, that we are a part of a very unique thing that God is doing right now in His kingdom. And I don't know anything like it right now. And I'm just praising his name for being a small part. We need to pray for each other too, don't we?
To whom much is given, what? Much is required. And we need to stay sensitive to the will of God. So instead of saying, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, what we want to say is, if the Lord, what? Wills. That's the filter, isn't it? Through which we make all our plans. That's the way to live. Is there anybody in this room foolish enough to say, I want what I want, even if it's outside the will of God? That's pretty foolish, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I want God's blessing. I want God's best. Therefore, I want His will in my life. I've seen it in the past. It's absolutely overwhelming. I want more of it in the future. And I hope you do too. Let's pray together.